Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant. We welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Hope you're enjoying your weekend. It's busy in Frankfurt as we head toward the final weeks of the 2022 session. Lots of bills being debated, including tax reform and the state budget. Later, we'll hear more perspective on a proposed change to ambulance services in Kentucky, how they're governed, how they're approved to start up in serving a community. That discussion later. But first, some Jewish leaders in Kentucky have called for state lawmakers to take some anti-Semitism training after controversial comments have been made at the state capitol during this session of the legislature. Two lawmakers made references during a discussion about getting a better price on a state rental during a committee meeting. Last week, a lawmaker brought up Jewish people and the Holocaust during an abortion debate. In all cases, the lawmakers apologized. Rabbi Slomo Lipkin is chairman of the Kentucky Jewish Council. He runs the Habab of the Bluegrass and the UK Jewish Student Center. Rabbi, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you coming in very much. Thanks for having me here today. You're a Kentucky native. Uh, I'm not sure uh, folks realize that. And your brother, uh, also a, a rabbi. Uh, yeah, uh, my brother is the first rabbi in history to be born in Kentucky and serve here in the bluegrass. He's known internationally as the bourbon rabbi. And I'm the second rabbi in history to be born in Kentucky and serve here. He's a bourbon rabbi because he oversees kosher he, bourbon products? He both has a, has a brand himself that he makes here in Kentucky, creating jobs called bourbon rabbi, as well as he's the overseer for almost all of kosher bourbon. Last year, you uh, successfully pressed the legislature to pass a resolution uh, against intolerance and, and hateful expressions, and it encouraged public officials uh, to live up to that. Uh, how do you describe your feelings this year when there have been a couple of back-to-back uh, -back situations where controversial comments uh, were made by elected officials? Well, last year, Kentucky became the first state to recognize the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, the Jewish community's established definition of what Jew hatred looks like and accepted upon themselves the responsibility to call it out when they see it. And I think this year shows how important that was, that we do need to have that voice every time. Uh, last week after a, a hateful letter from the, the Nation of Islam cult came to every legislator in Frankfurt, both the Speaker and Minority Leader Jenkins put a letter together saying that we have this definition and it calls for us to speak out, and they did so. So I think with each of these opportunities, or each of these incidents, there was the opportunity to say Kentucky does not allow anti-Semitism. Kentucky stands against Jew hatred. And as the, the speaker and minority leader said, it's an opportunity to speak out. It's one of those times we're called to raise our voices. And yet these uh, comments came, apologies also came quickly from the, the lawmakers uh, involved, and they said they meant no harm. Uh, what would you uh, have them consider based on the feelings within the Jewish community? I think there's a place for condemnation, there's a place for calling out, but the greater call here is for education. Uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the foremost Jewish leader of the modern era and my personal mentor who asked my father to move to Kentucky in the early 80s, spoke so often about the importance of using the right words. When Israel was forming their modern language, he pushed that a hospital should be called a house of healing rather than a house of sickness. He's one of the first people to put forth the term special needs to describe children who have developmental issues. And one of the first grammar lessons I teach my children is instead of saying bad, say not good. That it's not just knowing which word to use, it's knowing which words not to use. So education is a key part of this. And I have been gratified to see that in these cases, the legislators have been open to education, have took the time to understand the damage of those words, both historically and today, 
and have been willing to be educated. Do you uh, call for ongoing uh, anti-Semitism training, or, or do you you think that the discussions uh, you have had uh, with the lawmakers involved have been fruitful? And so, first of all, I'm a big believer that education is a lifelong journey. Uh, there's never enough education. We always try to learn more. And while I have met with several individual lawmakers, I think it's shown that there is a widespread need for this education. So I will actually be meeting later this week with a large group of legislators. Uh, and we have coming opportunities in the coming weeks to have education seminars for our legislators. What would likely be covered in that? So number one, the history of anti-Semitism, the history of Jew hatred. It's called the world's oldest hatred and the greatest canary in the coal mine for when a society is losing their way as we've seen throughout uh, communist Russia, Nazi Germany, uh, through, through many societies, the first little issue that morality is lacking is anti-Semitism and horrible things follow in each case. The fact is that when we ignore words of hate, acts of violence are bound to follow. So it's important to speak up. So number one, it's talking about the history, and number two, talking about how that shows up in today's society. So two legislators used the term Jew him down to talk about a state contract. And neither one was aware of the historical damage that has caused of the fact that here in Kentucky, Jews were expelled by General Grant during the Civil War. And what he blamed was a false report of Jewish business habits. Um, that just a couple of weeks ago, a young man walked into a Jewish mayoral candidate's office and attempted to assassinate him. And the week before, he had tweeted out his beliefs about Jewish business practices. That trope is not only something that has caused tremendous damage in the past, but causes damage today. So understanding what these words mean, what these words are connected to, and what anti-Semitism looks like, be it um, hidden under the guise of attacking globalists or bankers or Zionists, what that looks like today and how we can all work together to fight hatred in the bluegrass. You have served as a chaplain in the legislature. What have you been able to do in that role? So number one, I think that it's important for many voices to be heard in our commonwealth if we want to, as our motto dictates, united we stand. If we want to stand together, it's important to have a diversity of voices. So I've advised legislators, I pray with the legislators on a regular basis, and I'm able to share the Jewish community's point of view. Uh, Lubavitch Rebbe taught that the role of government is to uplift segments of the community and thereby ensure the flourishing of the whole. What America has always taught is echoed that teaching of the Rebbe, that each segment of our community makes us better, that it's not in spite of our diversity that we've succeeded or in spite of the different points of view that we've excelled, but rather because of it. We are better because of all the different segments of our community. And the other side of that is, when one segment is hurting, it hurts us all. So anti-Semitism is not a Jewish issue, and racism is not an African-American issue or an Asian issue. Our entire society suffers when one voice isn't heard, because what they need to contribute isn't being seen. So being able to have that other voice, that voice that legislators might not hear, either in their districts or in Frankfurt, without having a Jewish chaplain there, I think is incredibly beneficial. You've been involved in uh, lots of projects and outreaches. One of those is a project Friendship, uh, which provides needed items for uh, the disadvantaged all over Kentucky. That is uh, something uh, obviously near and dear to you. It's incredibly so. Being one of the few rabbis in Kentucky, I'm often all across the Commonwealth. And for several years now, I've been involved with Project Friendship, which is the social arm of Chabad of Kentucky, working to get 
needed clothing and apparel and shoes to people in need across the Commonwealth, especially over the last three months since we had the terrible storms in western Kentucky. Uh, it felt like Project Friendship was just had been put by God in the right place at the right time to be able to be a blessing to so many. And working with local officials in that area, working with the governor's staff, and working with local partners, including UK Athletics and Ambassador Kelly Kraft, who have done so much for people in that district, to have those partnerships to really just be a blessing. Uh, we, we just started a new project with uh, Frisky to help kids in school. I think our entire society has a benefit when kids are able to focus on learning rather than on what's going on around them. So to give them what they need to be able to excel. And it, it's been just a, a tremendous blessing to be able to be a blessing to others through Project Friendship. A few seconds left. It's a, a troubled time in the world, obviously, with the, uh, the uh, war situation in Ukraine, the divisions among people around the world and in this country. Uh, what will it take to uh, settle tensions? I'm a rabbi. My short answer is that Judaism promises of a coming era of peace and will towards all mankind, the Melech HaMashiach, the Messiah coming and uplifting all of us. But I think that we are challenged by our faith. And we were certainly challenged by the Rebbe to live like we're in the Messianic era today, to live like we're in an era of goodwill towards all men. And I think it starts on the individual level. There's been a tremendous outpour of support for the people of Ukraine. As someone whose family fled Ukraine as refugees, that, that outcry of support was not there when my family fled in the 30s, when my family had to fl uh, flee in the 40s, when my family was massacred in the 40s. And to see that perhaps the world is moving in the right direction, that there is that support, there is that outcry, there is that love for our fellow human beings. And I think that's what we need to increase in the future. Rabbi, thanks for coming by. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hope you'll stay with us now. Coming up, we'll have a discussion about emergency medical services here in Kentucky and some proposed bills the legislature is looking into. This is Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. We're glad you're with us. There's been a lot of talk about ambulance service during this session of the legislature. It has taken hours of discussion to arrive at what appears to be a compromise bill that has passed the House this week. Still, it looks like more work to be done. Until about 40 years ago, it was patchwork in the state. Funeral homes sometimes transported the sick and injured in hearses. Volunteer rescue squads handled some cases in makeshift vehicles, and larger cities developed EMS out of their fire departments. But requirements then got tougher. In the 1980s, most counties established ambulance taxing districts and formed local services. And now House Bill 777 would create a Kentucky Board of Medical Services as an independent agency of state government. And there would be exemptions provided for the requirement that ambulance services get a certificate of need. There would also be a study of medical services to be completed this year. We recently talked to representatives of mental health, hospitals, and long-term care facilities about their frustrations with non-emergency response times. Joining us with their perspectives are Tom Ellis. He is a Boyle County Magistrate and Dr. Eric Garrett, the Medical Director for Boyle County EMS and a physician uh, in Danville in the emergency department there. Thanks for coming, guys. We appreciate Thank it you very Bill. much. Appreciate it. Uh, <coughs> Magistrate, uh, ambulance service has certainly evolved over the years, as we mentioned uh, here in Kentucky. The pressure has been mounting recently to uh, change some of the oversight structure. And uh, as a local county official, uh, do you agree that needs to be done? Do you think there is movement toward a compromise on this? We certainly think that there's always r room for improvement. Uh, the 
the paramedics today are highly trained, highly certified. I'd like to loop back for just one moment, Bill. Uh, back in 1965, when I started at Georgetown College, the funeral home would hire 19, 20, 21-year-olds. Uh, they literally had a 1959 hearse. Uh, these young men, friends of mine on campus, would drive that hearse out on I-75 with a terrible uh, crash, and they were making decisions, no equipment on board, and uh, no medical training uh, as to whether or not that patient might go to the hospital or go to the funeral home. And in the uh, late 70s, the federal government began to look into this, and Blue Cross plans were contacted about this. The bottom line of that was we helped lobby through a cost on Blue Cross and Blue Shield and all other insurance members. It started out, as I recall, 40 plus years ago, three cents on your family, or on your individual contract, 12 cents a month on the family, and look at what we have transformed ourselves into uh, today. Yes, oversight, but we believe that there are enough issues that remain in this legislation that perhaps we should pull back and take a look and in the interim session between now and next year, uh, take a good hard look at it with all the parties at the table, which didn't start out with the first draft of this legislation, and get them to hammer out those details of what needs to be done. The <clears throat> major concerns that were raised, uh, and really uh, apparently the impetus for this bill, you know, was the was the non-emergency transfers, the people who might be in a nursing home, they're sent to the hospital, and then it's a long wait for them to get uh, uh, an ambulance to transport them back or to another facility. That, that is true, but a non-medical transfer can be done by lay people. Um, it could be done even by Uber. Uh, there is no requirement in state or federal uh, legislation or, or statutes uh, that says that it has to be anything close to a professional, and that's very costly. We have just in Boyle County purchased one of the two available in the entire nation because of the other issues of chips and everything that go into vehicles. We've purchased a new ambulance for over $225,000. Uh, so to use that vehicle for non-emergency care is hardly justifiable and it won't be paid for by insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, or anything like that. Doctor, your, your perspective on this, uh, you, you work in an emergency room, you see those emergency cases coming in very quickly, where, uh, which has to be the, the high priority, uh, but you also serve as the, as the medical director for the, the EMS there in Boyle County. What, what's your perspective? Well, you know, I, I sort of see it from both sides. Sure. Uh, the, there is definitely a need to, to transport patients out of the hospital so that we can have bed availability, so that we can get them from uh, uh, you know, the hospital setting and back either to their home or to the nursing home. Um, you know, and the hospital has a vested interest in, in wanting to do that so that we can turn these beds over. Um, and some of these patients do require transport in what I would say is a recumbent position or a stretcher. Uh, but they do not necessarily require medical intervention. They don't need vital signs monitored. They don't need uh, fluids. They don't need uh, medical intervention to ensure their safety from transport from point A to point B. Um, one of the issues what this bill does is 
we're we're sort of merging uh, the the need for non-emergent transport and emergent transport into the same bucket. And we have a finite set of resources. We have a finite number of paramedics. And emergency medical services is intended to be just that. It's for emergency medical services, uh, meaning that these trucks and these personnel who are trained to intervene in emergencies need to be available um, when the 911 call comes in. And if they are otherwise obligated in a non-emergency transport, that is going to limit the and, and increase the response time that they're going to have when that 911 call goes out. The main difference is during the non-emergent transport, that patient who may be waiting, although it may be inconvenient, is stable. <clears throat> the 911 call that we're getting, we have no idea what we're going to. It could be uh, a life and death emergency. It could also be simply just a, a person that needs transport to the hospital. But those trucks have to be available to respond and assess that situation. Is it a financial threat to the local uh, EMS services, which again, the highest priority is those emergency runs, uh, that there be a proliferation of private uh, ambulance services that would do these non-emergency transfers? It, it certainly is uh, with our court right now because there are finite um, folks available with the high training, high level training of, of the people who are transporting these, these emergency patients. Um, and if we get into a wage war, uh, it's, it's going to be something that will come down like a, a ton of bricks coming down because none of us will be able to afford it uh, when we have available services far beyond what were imagined in the previous inter interview a couple of weeks. And, and I'd like to make a comment because in that interview, there was an impression made that I've heard from several of, of the, the folks involved in, in emergency medical services. They juxtaposed the seven to eight hour week with the golden hour, which was mentioned, as you recall, in that, in that interview with KHA. And the impression was left that people were dying because they were waiting seven and eight hours. That's the difference that the doctor is talking about between emergency care and the almost custodial care of taking someone who is re recovering from something mentioned on that uh, earlier program as knee surgery. Uh, patients are being transported back home after knee uh, hip replacement by family members and that does not require and therefore would not be reimbursable uh, under any insurance plans. Yeah, and to expand on that, the uh, emergency medicine ser or medical service is going to be reimbursed based on a medical necessity. And so uh, when the transport is performed, there has to be a documented, especially when you're dealing with Medicare patients, there has to be a documented medical need for transport, whether, again, that be monitoring of vital signs, uh, monitoring of airway, um, you know, uh, administration of medications and fluids. Um, the... Uh, Essentially, when you place these non-emergency and emergency transports within the same category, what we're, what we're passing in this legislation is an unfunded mandate. Uh, what, what is going to happen is, is this legislation is going to mandate that these uh, uh, state-funded and, and uh, fiscal court-funded uh, emergency medicine uh, uh, services are now going to be required to transport non-emergencies uh, for which they will receive no reimbursement which is going to increase labor cost and also inhibit our abilities to respond to emergencies. We've learned in this uh, process that there are a lot of perspectives uh, on this uh, bill and certainly there's been a lot of work uh, that has been going into it and it, it has passed the House, it's in the Senate. It's my understanding that your greatest wish is that this study be conducted to figure out where things are 
and uh, that there be some of the other changes uh, be held back until those, that study comes back. Absolutely, Bill. Um, it, it's unfortunate that there were two iterations of legislation, House Bill 296 uh, morphed into House Bill 505, and now we're on House Bill 777. So you see that uh, not everyone was at the table on the first and the second piece of legislation. They've tried to come together, but that's very difficult. There, there, there's a lot of uh, real concern by these highly trained professionals uh, in emergency medical services uh, that they were not at the table early on. And if everybody would just relax and take a breath, any disciplinary actions that need to be taken or any research about this golden hour versus seven to eight hour wait uh, can easily be remedied without legislation. And all other issues that might come up that are within 777 uh, certainly could be hammered out uh, if everybody would step back and go to uh, the interim session and come back in another legislative year. Doctor, these EMS uh, uh, workers, the, the, they are professionals, they are highly trained as has been mentioned and, and therefore uh, it's also uh, it difficult to hire right now and to find enough people to fill those roles even as uh, things are now, right? Uh, well, correct. I mean, in, in healthcare in general, we have uh, a, a demand that is is uh, far beyond what our labor resources are. Um, you know, the, the paramedics uh, themselves, uh, we're now competing not only to have them uh, work at our services in Boyle County, but we're also competing uh, as they seek employment in uh, hospitals as well. Um, they uh, have a, a qualifications where they can work in emergency departments and, and provide care in that setting. And so it does become very challenging. This bill, as passed by the House, uh, seemed to also place a lot of importance on a process for receiving and uh, responding and resolving complaints against emergency uh, service uh, uh, providers. Uh, do you see that as important? I do. Uh, there's one section in there that a complainant uh, filing charges against uh, any emergency medical services does not even have to identify him or herself um, and, and sign the documents, which is, is I, I spent uh, 26 years in healthcare administration and uh, uh, it's a constitutional issue to me, uh, state and federal uh, constitutions, that uh, we always uh, have the opportunity to face our accusers. And th this is a process that doesn't shed light on exactly who and what and why, uh, at least until they go to the administrative regulations, which we're far from. Uh, until we pass legislation, but I don't even see the need for that section to be in there written that way. So, in a few seconds left here, more discussion to go on this bill, uh, you think, before uh, all sides will be satisfied? I think there needs to be a, a lot more discussion. I think that uh, it, the bill itself really doesn't uh, substantially offer much change to solve the problem. It doesn't address uh, the increased education requirements that are currently in place under the uh, Kentucky Technical College. It doesn't address the uh, uh, low wages that we have for our EMS workers, um, and it, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't address um, how we're going to fund uh, the expense of having an ambulance transport a patient is not actually that. It does move the oversight to the Department of Human Resources, though, right? Yes, and that's basically adding to 
as I recall, in my years in Frankfurt, and probably even more so now because they have satellite sites other than that huge building where there were thousands of wor workers 40 and 30 and 20 years ago, um, it does add a new level of bureaucracy and, and changes uh, some of the uh, examination and, and opportunities for, again, uh, full oversight of what's going on as it's currently done now. All right. We'll continue to follow. Gentlemen, thanks for coming. We appreciate Thank you. it. Thank you. Much appreciated. Stay with us. We'll be back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. COVID case rates are dropping. The federal government is offering a second wave of free COVID tests and a new treatment for the immunocompromised. The FDA granted Shield emergency use authorization. Experts say it could save lives, but most doses are going unused. Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, has more. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here's your full court fast break. Evusheld, AstraZeneca's preventative COVID treatment. It is designed to help people 12 and up who cannot take the COVID vaccine or who cannot produce antibodies after getting it. A single dose consists of two back-to-back -back injections and the FDA recommends getting another dose every six months. A primary study showed Evusheld reduced the risk of COVID in recipients by 77% compared to people who received the placebo. Those are encouraging numbers. But there's a lot of confusion surrounding the drug. A New York Times report says roughly 80% of available doses are sitting unused. Part of the problem, the word has not yet gotten out. Many patients and some doctors simply have not heard of it. Plus, only a limited number of medical providers can administer it. And scanned federal guidelines mean inconsistencies when it comes to who should get it first. The Biden administration has agreed to buy nearly 2 million Evusheld doses. Right now, about 650,000 doses are ready for distribution. But so far, states have only ordered about 370,000. And the American Medical Association estimates there are 7 million immunocompromised adults who might benefit from the drug. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home covering the national stories that impact you. And a reminder that you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 11.30 on WKYT. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you make it a good week ahead.